Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on May 7th, 2019 at about 10 past 2 London time. As always, if there's anything that's happened in the meantime, we were unable to cover it. As always as well, if you want to get a 35% discount um, from IB Tours from their Politics and Middle East uh, section from Bloomsbury.com, use the offer code TALKINGIBT19, that's all capitals, TALKINGIBT and the number 1919. Uh, just put that in when you're at checkout. And if you or anyone you know wants to do a master's in terrorism and counter-terrorism studies, be sure to check out the master's that we have on offer here at Royal Holloway University of London, delivered from our central London campus and starting in September, October 2019. Anyway, on with today's podcast. It's my great pleasure to have on today's pod Nathan Smith and Emma Barrett from Manchester University. And in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about something a bit different. We're going to be talking about their papers, Psychology, Extreme Environments and Counter-Terrorist Operations. Throughout this podcast, throughout the first couple of, the first series especially, I've been talking to and talking about the need for interdisciplinary research and to need, need to draw on different and varied disciplines than we do at the moment. And within psychology, this is exactly what Nathan and Emma have done with their paper published in Behavioural Sciences of Terrorism and Political Aggression. So we are going to be delving into that and talking to them about this, this paper as well as future directions, possible future directions for this research. So Nathan and Emma, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Thanks for having us. So, Psychology, extreme environments, and counterterrorism operations. Where, how did you decide? What's the origins of a paper like this, and what was the aim of this paper? Although you still okay. So um, I, I'm at University of Manchester now, but I've got a long history in uh, working in government, and I used to run a research unit that provided research for uh, police and other agencies. Um, relating to a number of different law enforcement security topics, including uh, counter-terrorism. And that was a great uh, job, but it gets a bit depressing after a while. So as a sort of sideline, I started looking at um, the psychology of extreme environments, sort of a more positive extreme behaviour, if you like, so mountaineers and polar explorers and astronauts, and ended up writing a book about it. So that's kind of where my parallel interests came. Uh, and then when Nathan and I started working together, um, one of the things we thought about is whether we could bring some of those things together. Yeah, yeah. So, so similarly, I, I sort of got interested in kind of polar explorers, mountaineers a few years ago, um, and then spent about a year working for the Ministry of Defence Science and Technology Laboratory (DSTL), um, and so that some of that work was connected to extreme situations, um, and then joined Emma up at the University of Manchester. Um, which was where we worked on the paper um, and started to pull together these kind of two disciplines and the, the security CT stuff and the, the stuff that I'm particularly interested <laughs> in. I think I was interested in on the, the extreme environment side as well. So therefore, what's the, what's the aim of this paper? What are you trying to what are you trying to explore yourselves within this within this paper? Um, I, do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> so. You, so one of the things that, um, when you think about training counter-terrorist personnel, whether they're police or military personnel, um, a lot of effort goes into thinking about logistics, um, and so you know, how, how to uh, carry out tradecraft, how to get to wherever you're going to, how to work as a team, those kind of things. And 
not so much thinking um, goes into the sort of psychological aspects. And when you think about where a counter-terrorist unit, be it a police unit or a, a, a military unit, where you think about where they need to deploy, they need to deploy where the terrorists are, and sometimes the terrorists are in really hostile environments. And those hostile environments do things to people's cognition, their emotion, their ability to work as a team. Um, and we haven't seen any papers um, that really dealt with that. So there are quite a lot of papers, and they can talk a bit more about it, on kind of military performance more generally. Mm -hmm. But in the kind of specific counter-terrorist context, we haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, just following Emma's point, I think some of that literature on the military performance, it focuses on kind of Green Army type operations, you know, deploying lots of people to an area. Um, there's a bit of literature on specialist performance, so kind of special forces performance, um, but but not anything that closely related to the CT type operations, which we, we talk about a little bit in, in the paper. So I think it was trying to figure out with the extreme environment stuff what we could learn from those settings that might be more similar. And we spent quite a lot of time talking to and working with people who go into extreme environments, either the mountains and pirate explorers and so on. And again, I think both of us noticed there's a lot of things that they raised as issues we'd heard raised as issues in our previous security-related uh, contexts as well. So it kind of it made us think, well, these are probably common, yeah. common issues and there's something that one quite well-researched field can learn uh, from, from the other. Yeah. And so when we're looking at this and when we're looking at the CT practitioners, the CT operations, what, what particular types of CT operations are you talking about and what ones are you not talking about within this paper? Yeah, so we, we specify two types in, in the paper. So we, we refer to the kind of intelligence surveillance reconnaissance type mm -hmm. operations, and that's not the kind of necessarily the drones in the sky, but it's more about the, the observation and collecting intelligence type stuff, um, which can take various forms. Mm -hmm. Then we also talk about the more direct action type operations, which might be more typical of what special forces do, but um, you know the capture type missions where they're going to go and try and arrest someone. Um, which is maybe slightly different to the, the reconnaissance type missions, um, typically a bit faster, shorter duration. Um, they might be deployed from a forward operating base or something like that, um, which is a slightly different setup, I think. So. And then the one that we don't talk about, um, but I, I think you could equally well characterise as an extreme environment, is the kind of high-paced uh, response to a terrorist incident, um, so something like the Manchester Arena bombings or the London uh, bridge attacks. Um, and those are, without doubt, very extreme and highly stressful, um, both on a psychological level and interpersonal level. Um, but there's been some really good work already done on that. So, so my colleague at, at Lancaster University, Nikki Power, uh, and my PhD student, Liv, Liv Brown, both looking at kind of those, those issues, and then all the work that Lawrence Allison and his team have been doing in, in Liverpool. So that, that area was well covered, so we didn't feel that we, we ought to focus on that in this. I suppose something that distinguishes the two topics we did pick, or the two types of operation we did pick, were there maybe where people are having to live in extreme environments mm. more mm. so than kind of respond and then go back home, say. Um, so that might, might be the thing that's distinguishing. Mm. Um, and, and the extreme literature kind of helps understand that as well. And when you're looking at drawing from the extreme literature that's already out there, the extreme environments literature, what specific kinds of extreme environments did you find to be analogous? So there, there's a broad extreme environment literature out there, but what specifically were you, were you looking at? 
So, I mean, we we talk a little bit about what we focused on and what we didn't focus on. Um, we were specifically interested in the environments where people, so context where people go into a physically, mm. psychologically, and socially demanding setting. Um, usually to context where people have self-selected, so mm -hmm. they've made an active decision to go into, so not things like um, natural disasters where people have not made a choice, so that they're not agentic in that. Um, and then because, and Emma just spoke a little bit about the emergency teams, we didn't focus on that because it's already been covered in depth elsewhere. So we were really interested in these kind of polar explorers, mm -hmm. Antarctic scientists, astronauts and cosmonauts. Um, yeah, so we're looking for, for places that are um, physically, psychologically and interpersonally challenging. Um, and actually that, that does cover quite a, a wide, yeah. wide range. But if you think about some of the physical challenges in extreme environments, so extremes of heat or cold, um, sometimes extremes of um, uh, altitude, which have an impact. So this kind of physical stress is sometimes very harsh uh, weather or very difficult to cope with weather, high humidity, for instance, in jungles. And then on the kind of psychological side, usually characterised by you know, one of the key things about an extreme environment is fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're very dangerous places, so you've always got that um, threat of, of danger mm -hmm. there. Um, but that covers an awful lot of different extreme yeah. environments. And then on the social side, um, one of the key things uh, in, in a lot of the extreme environments that we've looked at and people have looked at is you, you're in a small team, unless you're doing a solo expedition, you're in a small team of people, quite often socially isolated for days, weeks, months, sometimes years, and however well you get on with that team, um, that can grate after a while. So it's, it's, it's interpersonally, socially you know, very challenging. I mean, that's always been quite an interesting paradox with the extreme stuff is like, often these things take place in very remote areas so you could be you know in the arctic or antarctic hundreds of miles away from the nearest other people mm -hmm. but then you're stuck in a tent that's probably you know violating the un's laws on how you can hold prisoners you know the space that you're in so mm -hmm. it's a kind of it's a kind of a difficult um, social situation for people and then they're also separated from their friends and family as well um, just to give us a sense within the not within the this, this research um, when we're applying it to CT, but in the general extreme environments research, what kind of ways is this being researched? What kind of methodologies have been used to, to find this out? Or, or is it ethnographic? Is it after? Or is it after their engagement with the extreme environments? So, uh, so there's, a, there's a variety of methods. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're not easy to study, no. <laughs> as, you, as you might imagine. Like, and they can talk about diary studies because that's one of the, the principal methods we use. Um, other things that we've used are kind of post hoc interviews, uh, surveys, um, and so on. Um, we've looked at the possibility of kind of analysing um, diaries, like, as in kind of written narrative diaries, um, and things like that. So there, there are those kind of ways of looking. And then if you're working on, for instance, some really big um, extreme environments, so this space would be an, an obvious one. Sometimes you get the opportunity, and researchers have done this, is kind of observe mission control, observe what's going on on mm -hmm. uh, the ISS, and kind of do sort of observational coding that way. But the, the diaries is what's been most fruitful, I think. Yeah, I mean, the diaries is really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a method that we're using quite a lot in our mm -hmm. research that stems a little bit from this, this paper, but it, it's really capturing those, well, what we do is a day-to-day -day fluctuations in these extreme places. So we send expeditioners out with these structured daily reporting forms, so they're kind of short questionnaires um, that come from usually validated scales, and then we can explore a range of 
issues whilst people are out there. So we look at things, well, Liv looks at things like team cohesion and, and the factors that might predict or diminish team cohesion. And we've been looking at how the events that people experience on a daily basis influence their emotions, mm-hmm. um, which we know are important for decision making and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's trying to get down and coping, and coping as well. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to get down to that nitty gritty of you know what what is happening at the daily level mm-hmm. that might influence our health and safety and you know how, how we cope with the demands at that point in time, mm-hmm. uh, which a lot of the literature hasn't really done up to that point. And, and it's kind of, imp- I mean, Liv's research is, is a good example of why this is important because you, you think of team cohesion as a thing that a team has or yeah. doesn't have, but actually what her research is showing is that it, it can actually vary wildly according to the events that that team is experiencing. So if you're the team leader of a team, you kind of need to know which sort of events are going to precipitate a drop in, yeah. in team cohesion so you can try and do something about it. Yeah. So that, that's kind of... And we see the same with yeah. kind of affect as well, so positive and negative affect. And typically, most expeditioners will be reporting higher positive than negative affect if you look at it across the whole period. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it at a day-by-day basis, the fluctuations are kind of up, down, up, down. Um, and if, you know, if you're on a day where your positive affect's down and your negative affect's up and something happens where you need to respond, mm-hmm. that might be a point of risk where you don't deal with it quite as well as you would have done the day before or the day after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's trying to really understand that, that situation. It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, like, it, is there a long history of this this kind of research or is it relatively new? Or? I mean, it's pretty new. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that type is pretty mm-hmm. new. I think there's been, you, you can go back to probably the mid 60s mm-hmm. when they started doing research in Antarctica on the people in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a bit, you know, it was new and it was emerging at that point in time, so maybe the methods weren't quite as rigorous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, the stuff we're doing, I think, is quite novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, so that in, in other bits of psychology, you've got kind of experience sampling mm-hmm. methods that have been used in, in all sorts of different places, whether you know, people get, well, used to get a page and then you have to fill in, <laughs> but you now get a mobile phone, a text, so, you know, fill in how exactly you're feeling at the moment. Um, so, you, so it's kind of a variation on what we're yeah. doing, but in terms of the extreme environment stuff. And I think and part of that is I think a lot of people kind of imagine that people, that expedition goers aren't going to take diaries in and mm. fill them in every mm. day. Um, and you can see why they, they might not want to, because you know, it's, it's an extra thing to do, it's extra weight to carry, you know, all these kind of, and it's, you know, psychologists peering inside their head. <laughs> Actually, we found them incredibly receptive. Yeah. Um, I mean, partly, we'll talk about maybe boredom of yeah, later, but, but partly because you know, I think they found it useful to reflect on the day yeah, that yeah. they've just had, um, and we've tried our best to kind of make them really lightweight yeah. <laughs> and lightweight diaries. So um, we've not actually had a huge compliance problem. No, no, the compliance has been we've great. Got, we've got lots of volunteers to to do this. So, yeah. yeah, and you, you mentioned you mentioned there about the, the boredom, the monotony, mm-hmm. but there's also a few minutes ago you mentioned about the threat as mm-hmm. well, and definitely not boredom and monotony there. So you've got these these complete polar opposite challenges going on. And you do have one of the really interesting things, and there are numerous interesting things here, and we're going to get into a number of them during the podcast, but one of the really interesting things was the clustering effect as well, I found, that when you can have these psychological, these social and these physical stressors going on and they, one on its own might not necessarily have that, that broad effect, but that clustering effect, what, what do we see here with this and what's going on? Yeah, I mean, the cluster effect is, is probably more 
conceptually derived rather than necessarily evidence-based at the moment. There are some interesting military studies that have looked at the combination of stresses. So, you know, if you're talking about, say, as a paper that was published a few years ago, looking at Navy SEALs going through Hell Week, um, so-called Hell Week, um, and it looks at the kind of the heat cold, the, the, the psychological abuse from the instructors, the sleep deprivation, um, and you know, typically the, the cognitive performance drops off quite severely as a result of that. Um, I think that's really, in essence, what the cluster effect is. It's the coming together of the physical demands, which are hit hard, but we know about them, and then those psychological and social things that are maybe the more potentially intangibles, but could have a, quite a big influence on our ability to do the, the, the job or the task. And do, like, when you're looking at this, are there certain kinds of people certain personalities who are who react more positively to these sort of extreme environments than others um, and what effect do we see that yeah i mean i think so personality when we're just talking about diary studies then actually we were saying that's quite novel but there's been quite a lot of work on the personality and the individual differences of these these types of people because they are quite intriguing. It's like, well, what, what helps these people do something that's seen as quite out there? Um, I think there's some interesting patterns that have been observed. So things like conscientiousness seems to be quite important. Um, so that kind of goal-directed focus mm. seems to be helpful for them planning, preparing, making efforts to mitigate risk, that type mm. of stuff. Agreeableness, mm. I think, comes through quite a lot. You know, mm. if you're going to be stuck with the same people for a long time in a confined space or in, a, in an area where you're re really reliant on each other mm. then it's probably quite helpful to be able to work with other people yeah. um, and openness to experience is, is the other one that seems to be helpful as well so if you're kind of interested in the world around you and open to those kind of new experiences you cope better yeah. in these kind of situations I think then the, the neuroticism stuff it's also quite interesting because mm -hmm. you know, they talk about this emotional stability mm -hmm. um, which I'd like to see more kind of literature on, on that and looking at the impact of neuroticism on how people experience the environment. Because it could be that, you know, you could see why it might be a bad thing if you're really neurotic, you know, you'd be anxious and you wouldn't be able to cope with the environment, if, especially if it's threatening. But then there are quite a lot of expeditioners that go into extreme places that maybe are higher on that, mm -hmm. that because they have that fluctuation in experience, they might get more from it potentially. Um, well, there's some kind of quite intriguing research that suggests that some people might actively put themselves in these dangerous situations as a way of controlling mm. that kind of anxiety. So, for instance, there's a great study um, done by the guys at Bangor, I think, yeah. on, on climbers and looking at kind of anxiety, you know, trait anxiety, and actually climbing can be quite a um, a meditative activity, mm. but you have to be very, very focused, mm. but you can then achieve something. So if you're someone who's naturally anxious and you might make it to the top, that can be mm. kind of quite affirming and uh, give you a sense of agency and self-efficacy. Mm. So, yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's every different aspect, uh, when you're looking at the psychological stresses, the social or the physical stresses, mm. you do come up with, I, um, I wanted to, after reading it, go to all of these <laughs> It's a long citation. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's but funny. it's on, it's really, really interesting research that's out there. One of the aspects when we're looking at social is the the role of culture as well. What what is it that the research has found in relation to to the role that culture plays uh, in in the in these sort of extreme environments as well? 
So I think when we, what we refer to in there is that the bigger the difference in culture, the, the more likely it is that it will cause tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at some of the literature on, say, um, like the Mars projects that we refer to, where people are confined in these chambers simulating what it would be like to go to Mars, mm-hmm. and they've looked at personal value differences from the different people that are in there, and they, they've sort of found that the bigger the difference in values, which is sort of representative of cultural differences, the more tensions ascribed to those those differences. So I think there's there's potentially that aspect to it. But again, like we just said with personality, flipping it on its head, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday about the idea that you might want some aspects of people to be similar when they're going into these environments, but the differences are also a point of interest and mm-hmm. they can provide something against the social monotony, you know, interesting conversations mm-hmm. and spending time learning about each other's cultures. So I don't know, it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. No. I mean, it's an important issue for a lot of CT operations because um, many of them overseas are done in, most of them are done in, in collaboration with local um, security agencies or police agencies. So that ability to be able to, to work together under pressure mm-hmm. from different cultures is, is, is really important. Um, but this is not just about national cultures yeah. either. I mean, you get culture, you get different cultures in particular between kind of scientists and military yeah. personnel. Yeah. One of the biggest sources of tension on uh, certainly historically on Antarctic stations has been the kind of the boffins and builders <laughs> kind of uh, tensions because you know they see the world in a different way and they have a different set of tasks and they come from very different backgrounds and that can be mm-hmm. really problematic. And I suppose even within different branches of the military and different branches of yeah. security, so yeah. there is while you might lump them all together as one, mm-hmm. there are different cultures oh. within those. Yeah, and actually this is something that comes out really nicely in the emergency services um, uh, uh, research that you know, Lawrence and, and Nikki ha- have done as well, is where you've got blue light services working together, so police, fire, uh, uh, and ambulance service. They all come from different cultures and they have different goals and, and one of the biggest challenges there is to make sure they're all on the same page and they all know what, what each other are doing and why. So yeah, there's lots of... Lots yeah, of I mean that, that cultural thing, it's probably, there's a really... The, the stuff in Antarctica really highlights it quite nicely because if there's a, there's a really good film, BBC documentary called Of Ice and Men, I think it was called, and it looked at the different stations that were down there. So, and, and they went sort of through these, you know, the British station and the Russian station and the American station, and they were basically microcosms of the home culture. So in the American base, there was like, you know, some Texan flag and like bar and, and pool table and stuff. And in the Russian base, it was very different, you know, yeah. playing chess or whatever. And, you know, like that. So, but the point is that there's the cultural tendencies that come with the people that go really will influence. And the coping strategies yeah. are, are different as well. So, I mean, bring it back to terrorism just for a second. Yeah. Um, so, so, there's a great paper by uh, Emma Grace looking at how Al Qaeda thought about the psychology of their recruits and, mm-hmm. and the stresses that were on them. And one of the the, the stresses there that she I, she found in the papers that Al Qaeda had identified is what they would call diversity stress. So you know, bringing a lot of um, jihadist sympathisers together from lots of different cultures and then mixing them together and then recognising that that might actually cause some problems that needed to be managed in terms of different expectations, different ways of doing things. And, and that's the thing. Like when we're looking at this, this isn't necessarily just applicable to the CT operations, it's applicable to, to the terrorists. And when you look at the psychology of terrorism literature, we spend so much time asking, why do people get involved? Why do people leave? It's not necessarily talking about the psychology of what maintains people involvement there and what happens when they're not involved in 
a specific uh, operation, a specific attack as well. And this opens up the avenues yeah. to that. Well. And this is what John Horgan and Max Taylor kind of identified from many, many years ago. So kind of like there's the, the becoming a terrorist mm. and there's stopping being a terrorist. And there's what about the being a terrorist? Mm. What does that actually involve? Yeah. Um, and in these kinds of extreme environments, uh, they involve exposure to all these kinds of stressors yeah. that CT personnel might be yeah. exposed to. But then there's lots of evidence for why they might in, in expedition environments, you know, that there's lots of camaraderie between the team members, there's lots of satisfaction because they're making progress towards a very discrete goal. There's mm -hmm. the agency of, I'm in this place where I get to make all my own decisions, mm -hmm. I'm not at work, my boss isn't telling me what to do, and, and the decisions that you're making are quite important as well. They're not just what cereal to buy on the supermarket yeah. shelf, they are, if I go left, I might die, if I go right, then I might survive. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're sort of they're powerful decisions that people are making. So there's some real strong drivers that will draw people back. Yeah. Yeah. Where does the where did the analogy stop? Where do where are the differences between those people within those extreme environments that this literature is looked at and those uh, within counterterrorism operations? So I think the primary one is probably around concealment and secrecy. Mm -hmm. um, so whether you're talking about that kind of counter-strategy intelligence surveillance, uh, reconnaissance type operations, or even the capture-kill operations, um, there's a great deal of secrecy involved in, the, in those, um, through most of it. Um, and keeping secrets and concealing things, um, particularly when you know, revealing those secrets will lead to you being killed or, or tortured, that's a pretty big stressor, um, and I don't think it's one we've ever come across in the extreme environments li literature. Um, so that that's clearly one of the big differences. I suppose some of the, the different types of isolation that come with mm -hmm. um, the concealment issue as well. You know, we, a lot of these groups are physically isolated from their normal social networks, mm -hmm. but that that psychological isolation that comes with being in a group. That don't really know who you are. So, are you getting the true? Is is the camaraderie you're experiencing true camaraderie, which it wouldn't necessarily be if it's a, a UC operation. So, um, so that 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 isolation issue is connected quite closely to the the concealment stuff. And the other, another area as well where it's kind of is it's a bit mixed, but in general, people involved in counterterrorism operations are selected and trained yeah. for that. Um, now, the the guys who go on extreme. Uh, Expeditions. You know, some of them are selected and trained astronauts, for example, but an awful lot of them aren't. They they've decided they want to do this. They train themselves, um, but they, you know, they they don't have that kind of selection issue of selecting out um, people who might not be able to cope. I suppose a bit of a limitation, really, in, in what we talked about as well is most of the expeditions that, or the the environments and the research papers we refer to are cases of pretty successful. The, the examples. There, there may be difficulties throughout, but usually the, the team have got to the end and they've finished it. Mm -hmm. There are very few studies of a team failing halfway and then abandoning um, mm -hmm. the expedition, partly because they're quite hard to, you know, you don't know who's going to fail mm -hmm. and they're quite hard to seek out um, before, but you know, that's a gap. Really. Yeah. Something, something to bear in mind, for, mm -hmm. for sure. You, within it, you talk about the effect that fatigue has um, in, in these extreme environments and the, the effect that it has on cognition etc. What, what has the research found in, the, in this regard and how might that be applicable in those CT uh, situations as well? 
So I guess I guess there's two there's two points to this. So there's the sleep deprivation aspect mm. that contributes to fatigue. Um, so in the extreme stuff, there's lots of examples of these environments are not very good for us getting good quality sleep. Um, often they're quite uncomfortable sleeping in tents on the floor. They're pretty cold or hot. Um, there's also the operational demands of CT type missions that might mean that it's really difficult for us to go to sleep, difficult for people to go to sleep um, just because. The tempo is so high that they've not got the time to actually rest. Or they might be sleeping at, at strange, like strange times, time. so yeah. they sleep during the day so that they can carry out yeah. a, a nighttime operation. Yeah. I suppose some of the stuff we referred to was from Antarctica and the Arctic, and obviously the, the circadian rhythms are impacted because of the light-dark cycles as well. There's the other side of it then is the fatigue that comes with high tempo activity in and of itself. So you don't necessarily have to be sleep deprived to be fatigued. Mm -hmm. um, you might be working really hard for eight hours a day you're going to get tired. Mm -hmm. um, and if your nutrition isn't optimal as well, you know, all of those things contribute. And I mean, certainly on the sleep deprivation literature, it's, it's really clear that you get a cognitive uh, decline pretty rapidly um, once you start missing a night's sleep. Um, yeah. you know, it happens very, very quickly and, and just gets worse the more sleep deprived you get. So you're making bad decisions. Paradoxically, you don't realise how bad your decisions are as well. So you can be overconfident uh, in your decision making makes it irritable, um, it makes you tetchy, which is going to contribute to social stress. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a whole load of things that are wrapped up in sleep deprivation and similarly on the Yeah, yeah, and I think and the, the, all those things that Emma just talked about, the irritability and the cognitive decline, if you think about that in an operational setting, you might start to miss important safety-related cues. Mm -hmm. um, you might be not as able to understand emotional intelligence cues. So is someone being hostile towards me? Um, you might, your memory might be poorer, so you might not be able to remember that bit of information that you need to try and feed back to someone. Um, so there's quite a lot of ways that that sleep deprivation and fatigue could impact on the kind of effectiveness of the operation. Yeah. So. This paper, it's, uh, it's a narrative piece. Mm -hmm. It's talking about uh, what we know from another area, but trying to look at how this can be applied within counter-terrorist operations. What do you think, how do you think the research should move forward looking at this and what challenges there are? There are some obvious challenges out there, but what are the key challenges in carrying good research in this in, reg in regards to CT operations? So I think, I mean, from the, from the extremes, thinking about how we might use extreme environments to, to do this type of work, I think the, the, the prospective studies are really important going forward. So people are thinking, okay, I'm interested in studying some of these groups is making sure that you follow them from the before they go mm -hmm. um, and that you capture that experience throughout because it, when, when you get to the point where you're doing a retrospective study, which we do and people do anyway, um, there are limitations in remembering what it was like. I think the rose-tinted spectacles come on potentially um, so you don't capture that essence of the environment. The other things that we've been looking at, I mean I, ideally what we'd, what we'd love to do is do one of those daily diary studies with a with yeah. a CBT, that'd be perfect. <laughs> that'd be Likelihood of us being able to do that is yeah. pretty slim mm -hmm. um, and part and that's partly because of the kind of the additional um, work on the mission. So one of the yeah. things that we've been talking about is you know is there a is there a way we can gather that data in a less demanding way. It's not, not that it's massively demanding at the moment, but it's something. So could we look at, for instance, automated, yeah. you know, things that we could measure in an, in an automated way? Um, or, you know, could you have like an, an iPad or something to, to enter your data in? 
um, as a way of kind of collecting it over time. And I think the you know the big the big question is one that you brought up earlier, which is the cluster effects. Mm -hmm. um, so but you need to collect an awful lot of data mm -hmm. <laughs> on all those different stresses and, and reactions to them. So that's that's a major undertaking. Mm -hmm. And I think I mean the other thing as well, which we I guess we try and do in the work we're mm -hmm. we're doing is really trying to understand the end user need, mm -hmm. um, and that partly has shaped what we talk about in the paper. But it's some of these issues are really interesting. Some of them have been done quite a lot. So like the sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. stuff, that, that's been quite well researched. Um, and you know, there's obviously a need for that, but it's trying to figure out from the end users, is there a particular area? So the concealment issue might be one. Mm -hmm. um, and then designing studies where we can use the analogous groups to understand um, that issue. Because mm -hmm. there might, you know, there might be groups going into extreme environments that are having to operate with some level of secrecy, maybe not the same level, um, but you know, some of the teams that go out into the, the desert expeditions in the Middle East that aren't involved in military or CT operations, they're still having to think really mm -hmm. carefully about the security implications of where they're going and what they're doing. Um, so you might be able to use those, those type of populations. Uh, for a diary study for the undercover operatives or for it would be... That would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, it raises other challenges. It does, so. it does raise... I mean, and, and we're kind of straying into research that it's very difficult for academics to do. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to rely on, on people elsewhere, you know, for instance, in places like DSTL, mm -hmm. um, to perhaps do it. And something that we can do from academia is trial some methods and show that yeah. they work and, mm. and show how you'd analyse the data yeah. and then kind of hand it over the phones if you like and, yeah. and let them get on with it. But I can see some real value in having a more granular understanding of the stresses that are faced by undercover sure. officers and informants. Huge. If you're thinking about pre preparation, because one of the points we make in the paper is that um, you, you can't really select a, an informant. You, have, you, know, you, you recruit someone... If you're recruiting an informant, you recruit someone who, who's already embedded or has access to a terrorist organisation, so you can't put them through a, an astronaut mm. selection <laughs> process and, yeah. and, six and all of those kinds of things. So it's then, from a duty of care perspective, it's incumbent on you to make sure that they're as well prepared as they can be for the stresses that they're going to face, some of which they might not be aware of or might not think they'll face. Mm. And, you know, we talked about boredom. Yeah. You know, people don't think of terrorism is boring, no. <laughs> but an awful lot of terrorism and counter-terrorism is boring, yeah. and, and that's a stressor in it itself. So, so yeah, that would be that would be a lovely area of research. There's one where I think um, academics probably could do a little, a little bit, which, uh, although you know, fairly limited, and we touch on it in the paper, is actually thinking, well, we think about counter-terrorist officers in these kind of extreme environments, but of course they're there because the terrorists are there. So these stressors are having an impact on the terrorist decision-making, their social relationships, their psychological well-being, and all of those kind of things. Is there a way we can um, start to think about well, what, what might that impact be and how might that impact you know, how an analyst or investigator or, um, or a police officer starts to interpret the behaviour that they're seeing or even starts to be able to predict what sort of behaviour you might see under certain stressful circumstances? And what's the like? Have you gotten a reaction from the uh, from this paper from the end users? Um, have has been has it been taken on taken on board, or have you had much reaction at all? Yeah. Um, so we did a we did a workshop um, last year for Crest, the mm -hmm. Centre for Research and Evidence on Security Threats, um, which was attended by um, a range of, of end users from kind of military and, and police organisations. 
Um, and we presented some of the things that, that are in that paper. Uh, we also had some people who themselves have been into extreme environments talk about their experiences. So we we're trying to mix the research and the, the practical side. And we were lucky enough to get some fabulous mm. speakers. Um, and it went down really well um, mm. because because we tried to make it very practical, which is, you know, this is the impact it's going to have on your personnel. Here's what you can do about it. Here's what the literature says about training and preparation. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and that, yeah. that report is open online, so it's upon Crest's um, put, put another plug in, which is there <laughs> is a, there's an issue of Crest Security Review mm-hmm. coming out in early June, I've been told, yeah. um, which Nathan and I guest edited all around stress and resilience in counter-terrorist mm-hmm. settings. So mm-hmm. you can read a little bit more about some of those other researchers' yeah. um, thoughts on this. And I think, you know, going out, I mean, broadening out a little bit in terms of end-user end impact, but, you know, there's lots of other organisations that might benefit from this sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing someone from the British Council next week who have to send people out to, you know, the Middle East, North mm-hmm. Africa, and, and they're really interested in this type of stuff because it might help them understand. Mm-hmm. So that's end-user impact, but it may be of a different kind. Yeah. And we've been done work as well with humanitarian mm-hmm. agencies and development agencies. Again, you know, where you're sending ordinary people out into stressful conditions and you need to worry not just about the logistics of it all mm-hmm. and tasks they're going to do, but their well-being uh, and, and their care whilst they're out there. So for both of you with, with this research, where um, what would be the next aspects that you're going to be focusing on within this uh, we've, we've mentioned about where it can go forward um, but across the next few years what do you think you're going to be focusing on in this regard? so I, I mean I think from from the academic side mm. I think some kind of organizing theory development so making sure that um, all of these findings can be pulled together in some kind of coherent theoretical framework that then can be tested and, and refined um, is really you know, from from the purely academic side really important um, again you know we've got ongoing projects looking at things like transition so coming back from extreme environments and getting ready to go again so that process of you know actually this extreme activity or endeavor was quite enjoyable and interesting and challenging and then I've left it and I'm back in the day-to-day work and, and now there's something a bit missing. So it's really understanding that transition reintegration. Um, there's all the diary work that we're continuing with, mm-hmm. uh, building a, a big database of um, people's experiences out in, in expedition settings. And on the on the sort of CT and terrorist side, I think there's there's a companion piece to this paper, which is kind of the terrorist decision making mm-hmm. in extreme environments. The the challenge there is empirical mm-hmm. data, yeah. <laughs> you know, doing it that way, but. There's a lot of success being had, uh, which you'll be aware of uh, as well, and, and other colleagues and people we've worked with, looking at biographies and newspaper reports and journalistic accounts. And it's hard work to, to trawl through those and, and find you know, references to, to stressors and to coping strategies, but they are there. Um, so that's, that's the major task. And what would you say in that? In that task, where would you see the key differences? Uh, I know it's very early stages mm-hmm. that you are with that research, but where are the key differences in the stressors for the, the people in the CT operations versus those those terrorists? So, so I think the big the biggest well two I guess um, one is training mm-hmm. um, and the quality of training that a CT officer gets is uh, you know going to be infinitely more better than the the, the quality that terrorists get and. Um, the sort of the way in which teams are trained in, in counter-terrorist operations is different to the way in which most terrorists uh, are trained. So the, the training and yeah. preparation, 
Um, and then the other area is, is concealment and secrecy. So it is, concealment and secrecy is important in counterterrorism. It's very important in the, for, for a terrorist, you know, even more so. Um, so I think those are the two, the two main areas. And I think looking at concealment as a stressor um, is potentially a very fruitful line of, of research. Um, because the people have looked at, psychologists have looked at um, the experience of secrecy and the impact of keeping secrets in a whole range of different uh, different areas. Um, and so we know it has cognitive effects, we know it has interpersonal and social effects, uh, we know it has well-being effects. Um, so those ought to translate, and again, we've working with John Holden on this for, for a while, uh, talking about how um, how that experience of concealment and secrecy is going to impact on an individual and their decision-making and their motivation and so on. I was actually reading a piece by John um, just last night, and it was his introduction, call, his call to arms for psychologists to become involved in terrorism mm-hmm. research. And he was making the point that we've been making time and time again, that you don't really see that many people from within the psychology community engaging in this kind of research. You do in poli-sci and other areas. Why do you feel that is? Why has there been this this failure from psychology to really engage as a discipline within me? That's a million dollar question. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so we, well, we do see psychologists engage, but they tend they tend to engage and then disengage yeah. fairly rapidly. So kind of they bring one thing to the party and then and then not follow it. I mean, terrorism studies generally is kind of quite a frustrating area <laughs> to, to work in. You know, when you've exhausted your data source, you know, where do you go from, from there? And it, you know, it's, a diff- it's a difficult subject. So I guess that's part of it. But um, I mean, I couldn't agree more with, with John's point, which is, you know, you're looking at human beings, ultimately. So we've got more than a century, several centuries of research on why humans do what they do, how they behave, how they respond. You know, why would you not want to apply? You know, why would you not just apply that to terrorists the same as anyone else? Um, yeah. I and don't, I that's kind of what we've tried to do, I guess. In the yeah. paper, it's just like they're all humans. So. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't really know uh, in terms of that and the why, but mm. you know, it's potentially from a data collection point of view, it's it's hard, isn't it, to get get yeah. the data that, that you might want from from these people if you, you know, if, you, if you're wanting to go to those um, secondary sources, then it takes a lot of time and effort. Yeah. Um, and so you've got to be really motivated and engaged to do it. You do. I mean, thinking back sort of twenty years ago, there was a lot of a lot of psychologists would kind of say, "Well, I can't do terrorism research because none of the data is available. I just can't do it. I know we've got to do something else." And and then you've got people like like sort of Mark Sageman and John Holman and, and yourself and Paul Gill showing actually with a bit of creativity and hard graft, you can find really useful, mm-hmm. really useful information. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other issue, which is kind of a boring but important one is funding yeah. you know they there is more funding out there now for terrorism research than there used to be um, but it's there's still not enough there to yeah. you know to attract enough researchers uh, the reason i asked the question is because i think that your paper highlights that what has been done on the psychology of terrorism has just really been scratching the surface of the potential mm-hmm. of psychology as a discipline to be able to be applied mm-hmm. to this area and to be looking within these look at what psychology has done previously mm-hmm. and see where it can be applied elsewhere like there my students are fed up with me just talking about the potential of other areas of psychology just being able to be applied that might necessarily seem obvious at first so you talk about this issue of extreme environments if we go back 
uh, plugging my own episode of this now when I was being when I had my episode for this I was talking about how I always thought about using sports psychology and those expert novice differences within sports psychology mm-hmm. as well as as potential avenue as well. There's so much there within this discipline, within other disciplines as well that we could could go on to. But um, Nathan Emma, thank you so much for for your time here. It's been really fascinating. The paper is Psychology, Extreme Environments and Counter Terrorism Operations. It's within Behavioral Sciences of Terrorism and Political Aggression. And it was published in 2019. And uh, so it's, I recommend everyone uh, to have a read of it and see the ideas out there from probably within an area that you ha- most of you haven't thought about before. So definitely work well worth uh, having a read of that paper. So thank you everyone for listening today. As always, if you want to get that 35% discount, I have to plug my sponsors here from IB Tours. Uh, be sure to use the discount code TALKINGIBT19 uh, for all Middle East and politics books from bloomsbury.com and do apply for that master's in terrorism and counter-terrorism studies even if you've got multiple masters and phds already another one is never enough so anyway until then talk to you soon bye